I'm Mari Campbell-Jack, and you are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction for the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. So before we get into this week's episode, which is an interview with Daniel Seaton, the commissioning editor at Pushkin Press, I have a little bit of news about my first novel, Self-Help for Serial Killers, Let Your Creativity Bloom. Unfortunately, I'm not going to tell you it's got a publisher yet because these things take a very long time. But it is part of the Capital Crime and Amazon New Voices Award, which is really exciting. So at the moment, the award is open for people to vote on. All the entries that qualified are up there and you've got a prologue and a first chapter. You can read them all and then you have five votes which you can give to the ones you like the most, only one per entry. And then the ones that get the most votes go forward to the judging panel as a shortlist. Now to be eligible to vote, you either have to buy a ticket for the Capital Crime Festival or be a subscriber to Capital Crime, which also gives you two free crime books a month as well. So I don't necessarily expect all of you to rush out and spend lots of your hard-earned money on festival tickets. That's quite a lot of me to ask for you. But if you do fancy subscribing, or if you already have a subscription, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to read the chapter of Self-Help for Serial Killers and to consider giving it one of the votes that you have. Now, if you can't afford any of that, that's totally fine. I know what that's like. I'm not going to think any worse of you. You're already listening to my podcast, which means you're a pretty cool person. But if you would like to read the first chapter, if you go to the writing section of my website, it's there and you can download it as a PDF and read it. And, you know, I'll just love you for reading it. On with the interview. Kate, welcome to Crime Fiction fans. We have another interview this week and I am interviewing Daniel Seaton and he is the commissioning editor for Pushkin Press. You might have heard me mention Pushkin before because Dust Off the Bones, which I reviewed a few weeks ago, was one of their books. Welcome, Daniel. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Now, I think a lot of people will probably understand what an editor does in publishing. Quite a well-known job title, but what does a commissioning editor do? Uh, Well, the commissioning bit basically means that I acquire books. So it's, um, you know, a large part of my job is reading around and just looking around for books that we could acquire and publish. Whereas, you know, if I didn't have commissioning in my job title, I might work on books that someone else acquired. Would we say you're one of the first hurdles in the publishing house? I never thought of myself as a hurdle before, but I guess I am. (laughs) In practice, we, um, I'd say the majority of what we publish, I acquire a prime part of our list, the children's part, the literary fiction part. Because of our focus as a publishing house, most of what we publish is in translation, or at least from abroad. So that maybe perhaps changes like how I come across books. My first contacts are with agents, but also with translators. And yeah, I guess I'm the first hurdle that they have to get across. They want us to pay attention. I guess I see it as a hurdle because as a writer, it feels like there's a lot of hurdles you have to get over before you can get to even having a contract, let alone having your book on a, on a shelf. So I don't know, we maybe view it yeah. 
slightly more negative way than the people who are actually doing the job. Do you speak a lot of other languages? Are you reading books in other languages or are you reading the translation before you decide you want to to print it? So I can I read in French. We also have uh, our publisher who reads in German. So yeah, English, French and German are the languages that we read. Yeah, we can read submissions in within the publishing house. But for the languages that we can't read the entire book in its original language, in that case, we rely on we have readers that we trust in other languages you know who read books for us and give us their opinions there are very often we'll have a uh, sample translations submitted which give us a, at least a flavor of French is, I find, is a particularly useful language to be able to read in because often I've, I've been able to read for example like a Japanese crime book I can't read Japanese but it's already been translated into French so I'm able to read the French edition because they're because they're much more open to translations it's like a kind of bridge language actually I did notice that Pushkin does have a huge international outlook and there's just authors from everywhere and particularly in crime I feel like crime in the UK it's all very UK based and we have a real focus on a sense of place in crime as well like the city the countryside and it's a bit of a cliche now to be able to say oh the most important character is the city in this book Mm -hmm. with quite a wide scope of reading do you feel that different cultures approach genres or even just the act of writing a book very differently is there sort of anything that we can learn from other cultures and how they do this yes there's a lot of crossover but they're through acquiring for pushing vertigo one of the really interesting things that i have learned is that the countries do have these different crime cultures um, with different focuses and, and different strengths. I think initially we acquired quite, quite a few French classics. There's a real strength there in this in the kind of noir tradition, obviously, since they gave us the word. And another, and perhaps the most successful for us, in terms of books that we've acquired in translation, the most successful, um, the most like the most fruitful foreign crime culture for us has been a Japanese crime. We've had great successes with uh, classic Japanese crime that we've published in recent years. For example, Seishi Okamizo's Okamizo's titles, uh, The Honjin Murders, The Inogami Curse. He's the most famous um, author in Japanese crime history. And his detective, Kusuke Kindachi, is without doubt the most famous detective in Japan. He's like Poirot and Miss Marple and Sherlock Holmes, like all rolled into one for, for Japanese people. So they've had a real success with that over here and also with other classic Japanese mysteries that fit into this tradition that they call honkaku, which means orthodox. And what it essentially means is there's a real focus on fair play puzzle mysteries over there. Um, So all the clues are there in the book and it's up to you to be the detective and solve the case yourself. That's a kind of, that's a tradition that I feel like we strayed away from in the West. Readers in Japan really loved and kind of cherished it and have preserved it throughout all this time. So it's still going strong over there in a way that perhaps it isn't over here. And that's really interesting. It's something a bit different, but it's something that was inspired by British and American crime writing of the golden age in the first place. So it's very recognisable, very accessible. I think that's why people have responded so well to it. That's really fascinating, actually, because I, I would think that kind of mystery, you know, that's very Agatha Christie. So it's quite interesting that another culture takes that and runs with it themselves. And as these people fall out of fashion a little, almost in a way sells it back to us, which I guess is kind of like what's really interesting in culture is how how different countries and cultures take things and change them and mould them. So do you, do you think that 
in general, there's maybe a fascination with Japan as well, because it is a very different culture from Western cultures. And I think partly exploring a different world is the attraction to readers. Definitely. Yeah, that's something, certainly something that I enjoy when I'm reading. I always love to go somewhere different. Um, and we do find that Japan in particular is somewhere that people love to go. It's a culture that people are really fascinated by. That's, that's got to be one of the reasons why people have loved these books so much. But also, yeah, it's the fact that it's something new, but that, that draws from something that is so loved in this country, which is Golden Age classic crime. And what I think is also really interesting about the Japanese crime tradition is that you have this honkaku tradition of uh, classic fair play mysteries. But you also have what they call like shin honkaku, which I think translates as like new orthodox, like kind of a modern like reboot of that tradition. Supposed to have started with the Dekagon Houseburners by Yukuto Aetsuji, which is another book that we publish. And that is all about taking that to the next level, just increasing the ingenuity of the uh, puzzle involved, increasing the emphasis on the on the puzzle elements. Uh, certainly a lot of Shin Honkaku puzzle mysteries that are published in Japan these days involve all sorts of um, unusual elements like time travel or the dead coming back to life, just to make the mystery more complex and, and interesting. That's really interesting because I've I've always enjoyed learning about different cultures and of course a great way to do that is is through reading particularly if the author is is really authentically immersed in that culture rather than say just a tourist but I've often wondered how close that interest in a different culture is to enjoying things like fantasy and sci-fi because even although the fantasy and sci-fi aren't real they're still very much about traveling to a different time and a different place and looking at different ways of being human and interacting So you'd really recommend Japan for crime. With your reading, are there other countries which you think are particularly good at specific genres? And I mean, we are crime focused in this podcast, but it, like, let's just talk about everything because you can cross everything over. It's hard to, to pick, really. I think that what's interesting about crime is that the cultures are more distinctive and more particular to that country. Whereas when we're getting into the realms of, of literary fiction, for example, I find that there's more of a kind of unified international literary fiction world and, and culture. I, I obviously I read French, so I, I spend I have quite a lot of focus on French fiction. And on the children's side, I do think that French French children's fiction, fantasy, middle grade and YA fantasy and adventure titles are really inventive. I mean, it's not something that we publish, but I really love the uh, the Mirror Walker series uh, by Christelle Dabo that was published by Europa recently. I was, I was wondering if within the genre of crime, there's different cultures maybe go to focus on different kinds of crime. So I feel like in Britain, we, we love a murder. Everything is murder focused to the point where when it's not really about murder, we're kind of a bit surprised. But there, there's a whole other load of crime out there. Do different cultures focus on different kinds of crime or is everybody just as murder obsessed as we are? I think everyone's as murder obsessed as we are, really. Obviously, very dramatic about murder and, and, and maybe the fact that it's like a single moment, a single act that you can re- try and reconstruct that moment afterwards, really suited to, to mystery. Because I, I also review podcasts and occasionally I'll get to a point where I'm like, 
I've actually listened to enough murder. I need a bit of a break. And there's some amazing non-murder focused podcasts. I've just finished listening to the great British post office scandal. So it's a really odd one because it feels like it's a merchant ivory farce film because it's about an accounting error in post offices. And you're kind of like, I could see this. Judy Dench would be in it and Celia Emery and, you know, all, all these character actors. But at the same time like there there was a pregnant woman sent to jail there was a 19 year old girl sent to jail cover-up was appalling and on a scale with like massive corporate cover-ups you you hear about i was like it, it feels very strange because when there's not a murder involved somehow it feels like it's less serious but it does have serious yeah. consequences but it's also the post office you know yeah. I, I listened to some of that as well actually it's just I think it's the sense of indignation that you feel about it, isn't it? It just seems so, it's so unfair and you just it's quite painful to imagine yourself being in that situation. I think the idea of being accused of something that you just didn't do and having no way of disproving it, such a horrible feeling that we can all kind of sympathise with. One of the women, I think her whole village turned out to her sentencing because none of them believed that she'd done this thing you know the judge was just blown away by the amount of support she had and it was just it was phenomenal and I think what was really phenomenal about it was the wider public didn't know anything about it at all really until yeah. much much later on when I finished the podcast I thought I can totally see a book being written about this I can see a documentary I can see a drama you know this really does have leg but yeah. it's not murder um but it is still crime um, and I just, I, I guess I'm kind of fascinated a bit about crimes where there isn't blood and how we react yeah. as a culture and like as individuals as well. I was actually was thinking that recently. I read a, a book that I really loved. It's um, An Air That Kills by Andrew Taylor. It's like the first book in his Lidmouth series, which I'd heard about before, but I've never, never read any of them. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're historical fiction. They're set after um after the second world war in a, a fictional village called lidmouth and it's like he really creates that world in detail and it's so successful i loved it but for the for the first maybe 70 percent of that book there's no there's no murder you know i started to think oh maybe there's not gonna be a murder but that's absolutely fine because i'm like there's i'm so gripped by this you don't need there to be a murder and actually well spoiler alert but there is there is a murder at some point in the book but it's not as it's not as foregrounded as as you would you know expect from most crime fiction, and yet it works. I think it's sometimes yeah. just about writers having that spark of imagination to turn something and twist it, so you see it in a slightly different way, isn't it? Yeah, as yeah. a publisher, I mean, when you're publishing crime, I think I am always aware of, of the fact that with each, I, w I wouldn't say within the crime genre because there are lots of subgenres in crime, but within each subgenre, there are these expectations that the reader will have. I think if you publish a book as a cozy mystery or a hardball thriller, there are these different expectations that the reader will have, and they all generally involve murder. I think so. The challenge is to to stick to those conventions enough to satisfy the reader, you know, to have enough originality that it stands out. As readers, we want something that we expect, but also we do like something new that's going to surprise us. So there's yeah. a bit of a tension there to give people sort of the parameters they expect, um, but also something new. So I read quite a lot of true crime and I listen to quite a lot of true crime because when I was writing my novel, I was like, well, listen to the source material you know mm. you wouldn't write a historical novel without kind of going back to the original historical words of the people you're talking about and one of the things that hit me after listening to a lot of true crime was i think this is 
mismarketed. I think what this actually is, is true horror. I'm now a bit obsessed with the fine line between horror and crime and where that Mm. actually sits. And I think when you start looking at things, you can really see that. Silence of the Lambs, is that horror or is that crime? I think you could argue for both equally as strongly. 12 Years a Slave, that's a historical um, non-fiction book, but I think you could also argue for that to be true crime as well at the same time. So I think a lot of these genres and sub-genres that we put up are much more malleable than we maybe think they are. Yeah, and maybe sometimes, uh, you know, looking at it from the publisher's perspective, maybe it's the industry that, that makes you think in those categories. Um, and maybe it's good to remember so that sometimes the readers see more overlap between them than you, than you might. You can see how it's useful from a marketing perspective to kind of go, mm-hmm. this is what this is. So if you expect this, this is what you're going to get. I also think the genre might well be in the eye of the beholder at the end of the day and how readers themselves choose to interpret a book. What would you say makes a good book for you? What would make you sit up and really go, wow, that's amazing? Because you must be reading hundreds of books in a month. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure if I read hundreds of full books in a month. Yeah, I read a lot of a lot of submissions. I mean, it's a really tough question, um, especially if we're talking about crime. There are, as I said, there's so many different sorts of types of crime, different aims, um, appealing to different groups of people. It's it's difficult to pick, pinpoint something, but one thing that makes them all good. But I, I'm always looking for something that takes me somewhere else. I've had to boil it down. Like the one thing in common, I think, that all books, pretty much all books that I enjoy have is that they take me somewhere else. And I think the key to that is, I mean, character, plot, these are extremely important, but I think that perhaps atmosphere is underrated mm. you know, in, as a key element of, of what makes a good book. And, and I think that kind of that atmosphere, that sense of being somewhere else, just the believability really of the book, I think it all just comes down to the right level of detail, the right level of specificity. When that happens, that's then something magical happens and, and you're just absorbed by the book. And that's perhaps what I'm looking for. I mean, it could be, could be going anywhere. It could be going to like a dingy, cafe in like 1950s London or some kind of fantastical fantasy world or cosy drawing room of a country house in the 1930s or something it doesn't really matter where you're going but I just want to go somewhere I think I know what you mean it's when you open the page and everything else falls away in the world and you're just there in it yeah those are the kind of books where I'll be at work and at lunch I'll be like oh god it's four hours till I can get home and read my book (laughs) that's the main object of the day (laughs) is to start reading it again and then when it finishes you're kind of really sad that you can read it again in the same way it's lovely I wouldn't say there's a huge amount of writers who manage to do that consistently well all the time because it's a, a massive challenge. But I think everybody who's passionate about reading will probably really relate. So what trends are you seeing coming up? Because I always think, you know, as the person with the slush pile, you must have a great window into what's really bubbling up under the surface of the culture and, and where things are going. Like even if we were just focusing on crime, as I said, there are so many different subgenres, and they're all perhaps going in different directions. There's so much going on. What I am starting to see over recent years in in the crime market in particular, there's an enduring love for coziness. 
I think. For example, what we saw with the success of um, the Thursday Murder Club, like Richard Osman last mm. year. But also, I think a lot of um, there's more inventiveness that's starting to come through and starting to show itself a bit like the modern like uh, Shin Honkaku Japanese mysteries that I, that I mentioned earlier on. I thought maybe we're starting to see some of that coming through in our own crime writing culture. So, just, for example, like the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle a few years ago, but also the appeal you know um by janice hallett she's doing out and doing very well at the moment which again like those japanese mysteries really focuses on the puzzle element of, of the reading experience and really like presents itself as a puzzle a collection of, of clues and evidence that for you to evaluate and try and try and get to the truth i think that kind of planned inventiveness is something we might might be seeing more of i haven't read that because i have to say those kind of crime books aren't necessarily my favorites mm-hmm. It's, it's not to say I wouldn't like them if a writer had a particularly good spin on it. I think that could be interesting. I think it's because I just grew up watching so much Agatha Christie. Because when I was growing up in like the 80s and 90s, she was she was just constantly on telly. And I think because of like just being bombarded with it as a kid, I've kind of tried yeah. to stay away from it as an adult. But I, also, for me with crime, what I'm fascinated with is the psychology. I'm endlessly fascinated with the hoots and absolute gymnastics humans will go through to justify the horrendous things they do. So for me, it's, I'm more people-focused and the puzzle yeah. for me is the brain, I guess. Yeah. Well, I always think, actually, like Agatha Christie, her books are quite big on psychology in a kind of dark, cynical kind of way, whereas a lot of a lot of things that are marketed as Agatha Christie-esque very much aren't. You know, they're, they are, they're all about the puzzle and just a sense of mystery. But I think if you go back and read Agatha Christie, what I always get from them is that, you know, it is all about psychology of the characters and, and like family dynamics and darkness lurking underneath these like seemingly peaceable relationships. Yeah, she does love a really messed up, family doesn't be and the wealthier the better as well yeah because i just watched a few months ago they did a sort of modern retelling of the beast must die by cecil day lewis which is quite similar to a lot of agatha christie stuff it's from the same time i really enjoyed it i don't always like it when people modernize things because i could be a bit of a purist but i really enjoyed yeah. it because i felt they made the right parts of it modern and left the right old-fashioned parts of it in and particularly because the central family and it was a very moneyed family and really quite wealthy i felt that old-fashionedness actually suited them so i felt that adaptation was really good yeah i, I haven't seen that yeah that one's on on Britbox. it's one of their originals right. so you can only get it there but it's jared oh. harris and kush jumbo are starring in it and oh they're both fantastic what was the originals People have the same name the beast must die is slightly over the top as a title by Cecil Day Lewis. To check that out as well. I like the title, The Beast Must Die. I felt it didn't go with the modernness of the adaptation, but yes, as criticisms go, that's very, very small, really, <laughs> for something that on the whole was it's actually really entertaining and really worth a watch. And I think if you like that sort of golden age of crime stuff, you'll find a lot that's really comforting and familiar, as well as the modern stuff as well. It seems to mix it. You're making me think maybe I should give Agatha Christie another shot. Maybe I've not been <laughs> fair to her. I've been watching a lot of the Peter Houston of Agatha Christie films recently, and I think they're amazing. I don't know if you're, if you're a David Suchet or a Peter Houston of man, but I'm definitely in the Houston of camp now. 
when she was all over TV, I think they were showing both Ustinov and Suchet. But I think Suchet was the one who was shown the most. He's the one I'm most familiar with. I, re- I remember when I got a bit older thinking, my family had this really bizarre ritual. So we, <laughs> we were going to church on a Sunday evening. We'd come home. We'd all be given cheese and biscuits and milk and then we'd sit down and watch a crime drama and i was like we basically finish off the weekend watching people die i don't think that's that unusual there's something that it's weirdly uncomforting isn't it somehow for me it was like it was this cozy kind of you finish the weekend you're in a nice safe space and you know you're having your needs met you're fed you're watered and i always felt i wonder if psychologically it's kind of this idea of going all the bad things are outside and far away and you can observe them. You're not part yeah. of them. And if there there is that kind of, as you're going back out into the week and, and the world, if it's kind of like about sort of finding some kind of psychological comfort that you're not involved in bad things and bad things don't happen to you. Yeah, and it's all resolved at the end, isn't it? So you, the culprit always gets caught and they're punished and order is restored. This came up for me when I was reading Dust Off the Bones as well. Okay, if any listeners are planning to read it, you might want to skip ahead because I'm going to give a spoiler now. In the end, Noon. Is that how you pronounce the character's name, Noon? That's how I've been saying it, yeah. I wasn't sure because I, I also I wasn't sure if it was a play on Nemo. Nemo means no one in Latin. Yeah. So people have had characters called Nemo. Noon is obviously spelled no one. So I wasn't yeah. sure if the writer was giving a nod to, to this or if it just happened to be a name that he picked out. I wish I could answer it. I'll email him about it and I'll let you know. One of the things that kind of made me sad was in the end when Noon got shot and they, they burnt the ruined hut he was in. For me, justice is going to court and having everybody able to have their say and everything out in the open. And I know our court system isn't perfect and, and gets things wrong as well. But just shooting someone, I'm like, that doesn't feel like justice to me. Very common, particularly like in American crime. Oh, we've shot him, he's dead, that's it. And I'm like, no, I, I think if punishment's really what you're going for, then you need to have a trial and jail. But if justice is what you're going for, you definitely need to have the whole story out. But then I kind of felt Howarth was talking about a real situation that has never had any justice. So maybe that was the correct ending for the book. The almost genocide of the Aboriginal people, which is what Howarth is really talking about, should leave people feeling a bit unsatisfied. I don't think it would have been fitting, really, if, if there had been the scene where they go to court and then everyone agrees that the massacre of the Indigenous people, the Kurong people, happened and everyone was punished and everyone accepted what happened. There was a resolution there because I think it's it's talking about this this legacy of uh, historical violence that like, still hasn't been resolved even now. I think it's, yeah, I, it feels like finished business at the end of that book. There is still stuff that needs to be faced up to and, and, and you know, accounted for. In our, not just Australia's past, but in all of our... The theme that I see coming up more, both in podcasts and in books, one podcast I listened to recently, Thunder Bay, which is excellent, is about the, the deaths of Indigenous teens in a specific city in Canada. There's been a lot over the decades. The journalist sort of investigates it all, and it basically turns out it's there is a serial killer and it's racism 
because the racism against Indigenous people is appalling and these children are totally denied any of their rights. And I just thought it was an incredibly clever way to spin it as true crime, (laughs) but move it out to be something that's much more sociological in what it's trying to do. So I think there is a trend of people using crime to talk about these much, much bigger issues that are really quite complex. And I love the fact the character Henry Wells didn't succeed. I thought that's kind of much more like life. It's so very rare that one person on their own totally makes a difference and changes everything. It has to be like a confluence of so many things happening to make that difference. I mean, I felt sorry for him. Because he was so hopeful. At the same time, I loved the fact that it was real. For listeners, I'm going to stop talking about that book now. So you can you can start listening again if you have skipped forward to not have spoilers. Definitely buy it if you haven't bought it already. Dust off the oh, bones by Paul. I'm interested to see what the reception is like, particularly in Australia. The reception for Only Killers and Thieves, the, the first book in that series, was... It's amazing. So I think there's a lot of people waiting for it over there. So we, We've talked quite a bit about crime and the subgenres in crime. Is, are there any subgenres you hate, like absolutely hate in crime? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm quite omnivorous when it comes to books in general, really. I like to browse here and there and sample a bit of everything. One thing that I just can't really get over is, is books that are narrated by inanimate objects. Um, that doesn't happen too much in crime genres, so... Can you give me an example of that? I, I have read a book narrated by a monkey, but not an inanimate object. Okay, that would, I can suspend disbelief and imagine that I'm listening to the thoughts of a monkey, but I can't suspend disbelief and imagine that I'm listening to the thoughts of, like, a chair or a balloon. I could imagine there could be quite a lot of drama in a balloon's life. They're generally quite short. I think it's. I think, I think I'm probably being unreasonable, but that's just the thing that I can't get on board with. I can see why that might put you off there. My bugbearing crime is middle-aged white detective men who are a bit of a maverick, but always get their man, and they're hard drinking and smoking, and they probably listen to too much jazz if it's possible to have too much jazz. And there, there are very good examples of that being done well, but I think it's just been done quite a lot now. I don't think anybody in the police would say you ever get very far being a maverick who works on your own and doesn't play by the rules and pisses all your colleagues off as well. That's why it must be so difficult to be a a crime writer, I think, because, you know, a certain amount of that is just, it's kind of expected. And I don't think you could, you couldn't really create a detective who had no, no hobbies or distinguishing features or weirdnesses about them. And who, yeah, who just constantly played by the rules and didn't really get any results. I think it's playing how to play with those conventions in a way that feels believable and original, isn't it? Rather than just stale and like, I totally agree with you. I'm you're going to ask me which crime subgenre I don't have any time for. It actually would be kind of un- unoriginal police procedurals. I think there's a lot of writers who write in police procedurals who are trying a real broadness of police people within them. Um, which reflects kind of more of the broadness of society as a whole and people who who might be having struggles and like normal, normal life. That's really nice to see. But I think there's still a kind of a hardcore for the maverick kind of loner, misunderstood person who I think they can be very interesting on the page or on the screen. Actually, in real life, they're probably just an arsehole. Problem I have with those that type of book as well is that the intrigue of the crime is just kind of separate from the from the detective. They aren't that bound up in it. 
they aren't in that much jeopardy. Like they, they, you know, their jeopardy is this separate thing to do with their best up personal life or their, you know, their, their drinking problem or relationship problems or whatever. And because that's been done so many times, that just doesn't really grab my interest. Yeah, I much prefer something where the protagonist is is caught up in the mystery or conversely where you don't bother with the protagonist's twisted um, personal life and you simply focus on creating a really absorbing atmospheric weird mystery that you could just devote your entire attention to and try to figure out um you know that's another approach but it's that it's that kind of like halfway house, house between the two where you have this quite un- uninteresting crime and an unoriginal investigator although i'm sure there's lots of people who do like them and and enjoy them and and that's fine it's good to have a lot of different yeah. readers but yeah they're just they're not for me fire round with you favorite ever crime fiction an instance of the finger post in pair favorite detective uh harry fist trilogy published by pushkin press written by martin holman <laughs> that just tripped off the tongue <laughs> favorite villain ripley talented mr ripley absolutely favorite crime tv jonathan creek really <laughs> <laughs> not really that's the first thing that came to mind uh, but I do like Jonathan Creek um, oh no Peter used to love Agatha Christie Death on the Nile it's a classic and favourite crime film I mean The Usual Suspects it is very good it's hard to fault it as a film yeah. finally I asked one of our guests to recommend a book so we have the True Crime Fiction bookshop which is an affiliate of bookshop.org which works with independent bookshops so everything comes from independent shops and helps keep them going and I put all the books we review there for people to buy straight from the shop and I always ask guests if they have a recommended book for people I can put on a recommended shelf it doesn't have to be crime just something you really really love and you'd like to share and think everyone should read I think I'll pick the book I mentioned just now as my favourite ever crime novel, which is An Instance of the Finger Post by Ian Pears. It's a historical mystery. It was published in 1997. Um, I'm a big fan of historical fiction in general. I read it for the first time as a, probably when I was at school and reread it many times. And I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a modern classic. I don't think I'm the only one who 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 loves it. So it's set in in the 17th century during the Restoration. Amazingly atmospheric. Essentially, it's, it's a murder mystery, which is split into four parts, and each part is narrated by a different person. Really convincingly, there's really different voices, very different people. Basically, after the end of each part, you think you understand what's happened. And then after the end of the next part, you're, you know, your, your assessment is completely revised. It's done very skillfully. It's, got, it's very much like postmodern, multiple perspectives, um, and it comes to a very satisfying conclusion. One last question. Do you ever get bored of reading? Do you ever get to a place where you're like, I read so much, I just don't want to read anymore? I don't think so. No, I don't think I, I, don't think I ever do. I've always been, I've always loved reading ever since. Yeah, literally for as long as I can remember, it's been my favourite thing to do. I have moods when I'm not in the mood for reading, but it's never, it's never because I've read too much and, you know, I never feel like I need to have a break from it. No, which is lucky since I have to do it all the time for my job. <laughs> like sometimes when you hear about the amount people in publishing are reading I kind of feel a bit like wow I wonder if you ever like if it's like binging and you have so much you end up feeling like a little bit sick afterwards 
Well, sometimes, I guess, sometimes it feels like, on the one hand, you know, it's wonderful and I, I'm really lucky to be able to work in the area that I, just happens to be like my, my favourite thing in the whole world. On the other hand, sometimes you, you have to really struggle to make sure that your reading isn't completely dominated by stuff that you're reading for work. You, know, you don't want to lose that love of reading. You don't want to lose your identity as, a, as just a reader who's doing it for the love of reading. So yeah, sometimes that can be a little bit of a struggle. I think I know what you mean, because although I love crime, I'm occasionally like, I need to not be in a crime space in my head particularly if I've been listening to a lot of podcasts as well because they're often about real life crime so you don't have that thing of I can shut the book and it's it's all fantasy anyway that none of that happened and I'm a bit like I need to read a comedy or you know I need to read a non-fiction book about collecting plants or something really really benign anyway thank you so much for giving yeah. us your time and I hope my listeners from that online maybe have a bit more of an idea of some of the things that are happening in in publishing and a steer towards some really good books for them to read as well. Great. Thanks very much for having me. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow. Was that a children's book? Or was it an adult novel? (laughs) I was just imagining an adult novel narrated by a balloon. I was like, it's just, yeah, I would kind of want to read it, I think, just to have the experience. Um, Yeah, I 